Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. When your space has the long-lasting, noticeable scent of Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist, you'll want to invite everyone over. From book club to reality TV watch parties, even the in-laws. It smells amazing. Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist is infused with two times more essential oil versus regular Airwick Essential Mist for our most authentic, nature-inspired fragrance experience. Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist is perfectly portable and effortlessly easy. The way fragrance should be. Now that's a breath of fresh Airwick. Hello, this is Virginia Heffernan, and welcome to This is Critical, where we examine all of our cultural assumptions, like that QR codes are simply functional when they're clearly beautiful. It's a big story today, so I want to start out with the occasion for this episode and the backstory. Basically, on April 6th, last week, Larry Ray, a strange New York cult leader, was convicted in federal court for sex trafficking, extortion, conspiracy, and a bunch of other crimes. The investigation into Ray, who started his cult in September 2010, was kicked off by my guests today, James Walsh and Ezra Marcus. They published a story about him in New York Magazine in 2019 when he was still a free man, unconvicted, and still up to his culty ways. So that's the peg. Now the backstory. Larry Ray, whose biography you'll hear so much more about, was in prison even before he started his cultic rampage in 2010. He was there for a slightly more pedestrian reason, contempt of court. What had happened was that he was in the midst of a complicated custody battle with his ex-wife, and he'd refused to hand over custody of his two children. One of those kids, Talia, was a student at Sarah Lawrence College in Bronxville, New York, very close to Manhattan, by the time her father got out of prison. Now, Talia idolized her dad, and she parroted his kind of ex-con baffle gab about how he was innocent and an action hero, and he'd only been sent to prison because he was targeted by a vast conspiracy. Larry Ray was excellent at this kind of snow job storytelling, and Talia, like so many of us, grew up enthralled by her dad. Even as a college student, she could be counted on to do whatever he asked, and she ended up bringing in a group of young adults whom he trafficked, abused, and defrauded. There are a lot of people involved in this story, all of whom were under Larry Ray's spell, and one of them still is. You're going to hear these people referenced by name throughout the episode, and the names are in the public record. So I'm going to introduce you to the cast. First off, as I said, is Talia Ray, daughter of the cult boss Larry Ray. She is an unindicted co-conspirator in the case, perhaps because she brought other people to her father who then abused them. Isabella is next. She was Talia's best friend, and she's now Larry's indicted co-conspirator. Isabella is still very much under Larry's thumb and in his thrall. You're going to hear more about that. 
And then there's Daniel, another roommate who was in psychological turmoil at the time Larry came into his life. There's Santos, another student at Sarah Lawrence and a former boyfriend of Talia's. He joined Larry Ray's group, and so did two of his sisters, who were not Sarah Lawrence students. Finally, there's Claudia, a student who turned to sex work for years at Larry's behest to make money for him. It's a grim story. James Walsh and Ezra Marcus broke this story back in 2019. James is a staff writer at New York and the author of the book Playing Against the House. In his reporting, he spent some time with Larry and experienced Ray's extraordinary manipulation skills up close. Ezra is a freelance journalist, and he graduated from Sarah Lawrence College right around the same time as Larry Ray's victims. For both of these guys, for Ezra and James, it seems like last week's conviction was the end to a really heavy chapter, and I'm glad they were able to make some time to share the story with This is Critical. James and Ezra, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Well, this is a big week for you guys because Larry Ray, the guy you wrote about three years ago, has at last been convicted. So tell me about Larry Ray. Where to begin? Um, <laughs> he's definitely uh, one of a kind. Yeah, in my mind, there's two Larry Rays. Uh, well, maybe three. I think there's the Larry Ray that his victims uh, knew, um, which was this guy who started off as being very charming and fascinating and magnetic um, and then quickly changes to become um, an abusive, extremely um, vindictive control freak. Uh, there's the sort of Larry Ray in the media, uh, which I think people say he's, you know, the most evil person that they could think of. And even the U.S. attorney for the Southern District uh, called him an evil man. And then there's kind of the Larry Ray that... I got to know personally, and uh, that Ezra certainly knows about, which is somebody who's just exhausting, and he's just somebody who's out for himself, and maybe even a case study in kind of psychoanalytics that's that's beyond my comprehension. <laughs> it's also, he, he's a very New York character. I mean, mm. he's from Brooklyn, he's from Bay Ridge, and he's crossed all these lines, and, and as far as like parts of New York civil society that he's participated in. I mean, he's he's been a Wall Street guy, kind of on like the seamy side of Wall Street. He's mm -hmm. been a political kind of fixer. Yeah, so you write about how he was kind of palling around with this sort of interesting group of New Yorkers, like Bernie Carrick, who was commissioner of the NYPD in the 90s and later convicted of tax fraud, partly because Larry informed on him, right? And then there's Rudy Giuliani, the former mayor of New York City, later Trump's fixer. But then there's also a non-New Yorker, Mikhail Gorbachev, the last leader of the Soviet Union. So Larry would sort of escort Gorbachev around New York. Is that right? There is a Forrest Gumpian quality there. Yes, Forrest Gump of New York City. But I, I need to, I was going to say back up, but actually fast forward to why we're even talking about him. Like, tell us in a nutshell about Sarah Lawrence. Yeah, okay. So in 2010, Larry gets out of prison. Uh, he's been there for three years. And he goes to visit his daughter, Talia Ray, who is a Sarah Lawrence student. And he spends a lot of time visiting her in her dorm, uh, which is like a kind of 
uh, on campus, but freestanding house with eight bedrooms where she's living with, you know, some of the friends she met her freshman year. This is sophomore year. Talia had spent the prior year basically telling them about how her dad is this heroic character. I mean, she would describe him as like like a political prisoner Mm. who went to prison because of a conspiracy. Basically, she was like, my dad's in prison because he exposed Carrick's corruption. Hmm. So, you know, her friends would hear these stories and basically thought that her dad was a good guy. All right, so they've heard all these stories from Talia, and then Larry just shows up. So what happens next? Basically, Larry moved in. Okay. And he ended up spending, you know, the better part of a few months there, and he sort of set up shop. He became a fixture in the in the living room. He would, he would you know, make dinner for the kids who lived there, tell them about his life, talk about you know, philosophy, what have you. And uh, I think, you know, for uh, some of these kids, some of Talia's friends, some of them immediately took to him and they're like, oh, this is sort of like a cool dad character. And so the ones who initially bought into this idea of Larry as a political prisoner, or as you say, like a kind of cool dad, they're sort of primed to believe the stories he tells them, right? Stories like he was a secret agent who'd recovered stinger missiles from the black market or uh, engineered a ceasefire in Kosovo. And basically, he was telling them he was a very important geopolitical figure, right? You know, he didn't just come with these stories. He also came armed with, you know, literally a letter thanking him for his role in in engineering the ceasefire in Kosovo, written on NATO letterhead. You know, he came, you know, if you Google imaged him, uh, back then, the first picture that would have came up was him sitting next to Mikhail Gorbachev. Um, and or um, the the central narrative here is that he took down Bernie Carrick, you know, right. when Bernie Carrick was going to, you know, become the first, you know, Homeland Security Secretary. It was Larry who let the world know that he was corrupt. And that was the that was the whole reason you know, these kids were told why he had gone to prison. And so it's Mm -hmm. not only is he like this cool international man of mystery, he's also somebody who's been deeply wronged by the system. Like he's this action figure, this Mm -hmm. action character who's on the run from this cabal of of Bernie, uh, Carrick, Giuliani associates. And so that is one element and that is definitely central to like his mythology but also, you know, he is the cool dad. I don't think you can underestimate that, that yeah. element, too. And in a way, he's like counterculture at Sarah Lawrence because he's this um, tri-state area macho guy yeah. um, that I think has probably stood out on Sarah Lawrence's campus. And he, he like, knew about reality and, and life outside of um, this liberal arts campus in a way that maybe was appealing. Tell us about the Sarah Lawrence campus, because um, it's just, it's surprising to me. I can see him as a novelty to some students, but why didn't he just stick out like a sore thumb to other students and especially the administration? I think a lot of people just didn't know he was there. Um, he was someone's dad, so that kind of made sense to mm-hmm. people. At You know, you hear in passing, someone's dad is here. You wouldn't think that that's that weird. People's parents visit college campuses. And then I think the fact that he was actually living there isn't really information that was, like, widely known outside of this, like, small group of people, most of whom were just sort of so busy and stressed out by being a sophomore in college. They were just kind of like, oh, whatever, this guy's yeah. here. And uh, he began kind of meeting with them one-on-one, talking about their... Uh, mental health. He kind of became sort of, sort of like a, like a counselor for some of them. He got involved in some of their interactions with their professors, with, with 
various struggles they were having uh, at school and in their personal lives. And eventually, that summer, they moved in with him into an apartment. He was basically a friend's apartment where he was living on the Upper East Side. You know, some of them had summer jobs. They just needed somewhere to crash for the summer. Obviously, New York's expensive place to find temporary housing. And they ended up staying, you know, in a one-bedroom apartment. Um, and some of them would ended up spending the next, you know, eight, nine years of their lives under Larry's influence in one way or another. All right, so he's living in this on-campus house doing these kind of one-on-one amateur therapy sessions with his daughter and her friends. And then they all move from just north of Manhattan to the Upper East Side in Manhattan itself. So who were the kids involved? And why do you think they became so enchanted with this unlikely Pied Piper? One of the first people he really became fixated on, or, or, or whatever you want to call it, was Talia's best friend, Isabella. He would actually sleep in her dorm room, and she was sort of the first to really become this part of like the inner circle. Uh, and she's also the one who's, who's been uh, indicted alongside him. Then there was Santos and, and, and Claudia and then Dan, I believe, in that order over a few months. Part of the appeal for them at that time was like, you know how you go to a therapist and you're like, I wish this person would just tell me what's wrong with me. I wish yeah. they were just like, you know, he did that. He would have like a meeting with them where they get coffee and he'd listen to them talk about their problems, which were totally mundane, but it felt powerful for them at the time. You know, you're homesick. You have problems with your parents. The same thing anyone feels at 19, 20. And instead of a therapist being like, hmm, that's interesting, you know, you should like, whatever, give you some vague advice. He'd be like, well, that's because you have schizophrenia and because you were molested and abused. And he would just tell them these really, and that's powerful. I mean, he sort of spun up this grand narrative where they had like really severe problems and he could help them. Hmm. So I think that was really the hook was, was like, you need to stay with me and I will help you. He's not a doctor. He's not a psychiatrist, but he spoke with this authority about mental health in a way that these kids, they, they believed him. And that gave him a real power over them. I think I think about Dan's story, how, you know, Dan was one of the last ones to kind of um, come into the fold. And it was uh, a meeting. Dan was anxious about two things going into the summer after his sophomore year. He was, he was worried because he was, you know, he was just questioning his sexuality, which was, you know, very new to him. And he was looking for summer housing. And he met Larry, you know, for coffee uh, on the Upper East Side. Larry talked to him, listened to him, you know, talk for a few hours told him definitively that he was not gay, said, okay, now come with me. There was a limo outside with a, you know, a bunch of Dan's friends, get in the limo and said, hey, I've got housing figured out. You can live with us. So it was just like this, you know, one, two, three pitch. And Dan, you know, was was hooked after that. I got to say, when I was seeing a therapist at 19, I not only wanted the quick diagnosis, you know, just someone to be like, Virginia, you've got, you know, this particular syndrome, but I definitely wanted them to be like, and here's $500. And so a limo would definitely have done it for me. Um, (laughs) So one thing we talk about often on this show is just the fraud that seems to come up over and over again in our culture, whether it's companies selling things like untested wellness products or actual malefactors like Larry Ray or Keith Raniere at Nexium. I mean, it all seems to capitalize on this idea of your life is terrible, but I alone can fix it. So where did Larry learn to do this kind of coercion so convincingly? 
we can't say that he actually, uh, there was a method to his his madness. Even his defense attorney said there's no method to, to, to Larry's madness. He did certainly promote himself as having, um, and so did his daughter, as having these government-tested and funded skills that he had learned through the intelligence community. This, you know, I think there was one email from Talia, his daughter, saying, you know, like the the, the best possible skills from the top government specialists. Um, at the same time, the government, uh, when they uh, raided his home, did recover hard drives with all these sorts of um, papers on psychological manipulation, um, kind of uh, the the psychology behind cults, um, just all of this really intense stuff. Whether or not Larry really studied up on that and deployed those methods, who knows? But he certainly did, let's say, control people's eating habits, control how, you know, see, keep them up um, through the wee hours of the night, you know, questioning them in these sort of really intense ways to really grind them down and get them to make these false statements and false confessions. Yeah, that's right. False confessions. If you can believe it, this story gets even more convoluted. After the break, Ezra and James take us through what happened when Larry led the students off Sarah Lawrence's campus. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Here you are. BPM's high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue... Panting! You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. We're back with my guests, James Walsh and Ezra Marcus, the journalists who broke the story about Larry Ray's, do we call it a cult? All right, so all five of the Sarah Lawrence students, Larry Ray's daughter Talia, her friend Isabella, that's the one whose dorm room Larry slept in, Claudia, Dan, and Santos, all of them are now living, or at least in and out, living in Larry's one-bedroom apartment on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And then Santos's sisters, Felicia and Yalitza, end up joining them. So was anyone skeptical of Larry in those early days? Yeah, I think Dan is the, well, he's the, he's the first one to exercise some, some, some skepticism um, and eventually get out. <laughs> um, but otherwise, it takes, it takes, what, six or seven years before any of them really cuz even um there are periods in which they live away from you know the upper east side apartment um but still are pulled in by you know uh, Larry's gravitational pull um and, and kind of go in and out under his control so how did things start to get if listeners can believe it even worse um not only is he getting under their skin about their psychological non-problems or the problems that he invents certain steps in them and getting physically close to Isabella. What does this look like the next few years? Well, it becomes um, 
very much about money for, for some of them. He concocts this narrative in which he, be, he starts blaming them for damaging his apartment, his property, or him personally by poisoning him. And he convinces them, you know, you've, you scratched my expensive pan. You broke the expensive piece of carpentry equipment that I have in my apartment for some reason. You, he, he brings them down to his stepfather's property in North Carolina, has them doing yard work, which they have no idea how to do, rents all this expensive equipment, and then accuses them of damaging the equipment. And so he, he basically starts telling them that they owe him tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then he tells them that not only that, but, you know, he's been sick and his daughter's been sick and Isabella got sick. And, and that's because there must, somebody must have been poisoning them. And, and I, under extreme pressure, you know, he'll, he'll sort of badger them all night, like admit what you did. And eventually he, he wears them down until they admit to it. And then he starts getting them to document these things, to give them written and, and, and taped confessions where he says, like, if you don't start paying me back for all this damage you've done to me, I'm going to send you to prison because you wrote this confession. And these kids are freaking out. He would tell them they would have a blackened soul, if I think that was the phrase, if, if they didn't pay him and that they would go to prison. Hmm. Were there any demonstrable scratches on things or, or damage to carpentry equipment? Ezra's just shrugging his shoulders. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't think so. I, I don't want to definitively say there was never a scratch made on any of the... I mean, first of all, one thing to know about Larry is he has uh, almost pathological kind of accumulative tendency mm. towards heavy machinery that he doesn't really seem to know how to use. And he would fill everywhere he lived with like just absurd mechanisms like carpentry angle grinders and digging like backhoes and all this stuff. And and so, yeah, of course, this stuff may have gotten damaged, but it's like when you <laughs> fill a one bedroom apartment with like, $50,000 of yeah. like, you know, circle saws and lays. Yeah, it's like it, no one there seems to really know how to operate it. It's like, it seems to me like it's almost like a setup where you put something expensive, tell people who don't know how to use it to spend, you know, long days in the sun using it to dig holes and then be like, wow, look at this damage you've incurred. Ooh, oh, so how did those kids get that kind of money? So with Santos, that means... um Borrowing money from his parents, asking his parents multiple times a week. They would, you know, his parents couldn't really afford this, but they would borrow money from friends and give him thousands and thousands of dollars. In one case, he stole $12,000 from his parents' small business. Claudia eventually became an escort and spent four or some years exclusively giving all the money she made to Larry, and which ended up totaling an astonishing $2.5 million dollars based on seeing multiple clients a day, seven days a week, living only in hotels and devoting her life to trying to pay back the money that she was worried if she didn't pay to Larry, he'd send her to jail for. And yet the amount that they, he said they owed him never seemed to go down. It was just this like endless sort of, I mean, con really is yeah. one way to look at it. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I'm not the first person to notice that there's so many uncanny rhymes in the Larry Ray story with some more recent stories of scammers. There's the so-called bad vegan who gave all her money to someone who had crazy stories about his CIA connections. And then there's the Tinder swindler who was able to get all kinds of money. Both of those scams were turned into docs on Netflix. Now, in those cases, the one guy was using the money for gambling. 
And the other one seemed to just be using the money for the high life, like private planes or Breitling watches or whatever. But what did Larry want with millions of dollars? You know, this part's kind of maddening because there's no real good answer to that. He spent about a million dollars on domain names, which uh, sure. a lot of, yeah, makes so just sense. So just a blue chip <laughs> investment you're talking about. Exactly. Like something you can really retire on. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it, uh, on the surface, that looks like a money laundering effort, um, a kind of strange way to launder your money. But he, you know, in years of holding 8,000 domain names, I think he's sold only a handful of them for about $50,000. It is almost like his virtual hoarding, you know, the way he mm. collected all this stuff. He also collected domain names. He loved to collect domain names that directly, you know, um, uh, were like part of his life, like, you know, MikhailGorbachev.com. And he, you know, had a whole suite of domain names related to Bernie Carrick and his family. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, owned the domain names for all of the, the names of all the, the, the people around him, the kids from Sarah Lawrence and all that. It was, that was a way he also exercised his control over them. One of the kind of, uh, if you could call it a fun revelation from the trial was how much money he was spending on his own clothing, which was pretty oh, amazing. So there is a Tinder swindler <laughs> element to it. I mean, um, oh, yeah. maybe, uh, okay. yeah. I mean, he he spent like there was one one Laurel Piani shirt he bought for twenty five hundred dollars. Oh. But he was also living in you know suburban New Jersey at the house of some guy he met while he was, you know, in prison. So it, it's not exactly what I would spend $2.5 million yeah. on, but he, wa- he was spending it to a certain extent. He definitely uh, did take people out to uh, steak dinners a lot. Big fan of steakhouses. And right, I mean, that, that part of the seductions in the beginning where the limos and the steaks came from him, then the like faucet goes the other way when he starts getting money from Claudia for all the sex work. That's astonishing that it was that much money um, yeah, somehow I had this experience with Bad Vegan, too. I was like, all right, she gave him $10,000. That is a huge bummer. That's a huge bummer. That's terrible. And then it just starts ticking up in the, you know, how much until it turns into the millions. And you just can't believe. I mean, this is kind of a sidebar, but I just can't believe that that much money exists in the world just washing around through people into Laura Piana shirts. All right. Is there anything else I'm missing about the money from Larry? I think for him, money is just another element of control. I mean, this, what this guy gets off on is control. And so um, it's one, being able to provide for Isabella and his daughter and his um, father. He loved to give them money, but also just like having money coming in from Claudia and Santos and, and Yelitsa. I mean, that was just a way of feeling like he had control over them. So Yelitsa, she's one of Santos's sisters, right? And... There was another way that Larry showed he had control, and that was sexual control, physical control. This part gets very dark, but would you tell us a little bit about it? A big thing that came up in the trial was, you know, this notion of grooming uh, and how he kind of pushed these people ever further towards sexual behaviors that they wouldn't have been comfortable with. You know, he encouraged Claudia to work at a BDSM club and then become a sex worker, and he would sort of instruct the people he was living with to have sex with each other and and do it sort of publicly. And he would sort of humiliate them sexually. You know, he would make them put a dildo in their mouth in front of the group. And it was all sort of about breaking down their boundaries, embarrassing them, humiliation, but also making them willing to sort of do whatever sexual thing he asked. And he would tell them, 
if you don't do this, like you're not liberated. Like it's, it's good to be liberated. I mean, with Felicia, um, one of the, one of the victims who testified at the trial, he, he basically, I mean, he just would tell her to go and have sex with strangers and videotape it. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was about control. Right. Felicia, she's the other of Santos's sisters. All right. So did Larry use that as some kind of blackmail or what was he trying to get out of that? Just more control? Exactly. There's also different reasons why he exercises control over certain people. It's not just money. I mean, I think a big part of Felicia's story is that, you know, she went to Harvard and then Columbia Medical School. And I think Larry really liked having somebody with those sort of credentials under his control, under his power. And he would humiliate her by having her walk around in her graduation cap. Um, you know, I think one picture showed her Harvard diploma hung up on the wall in his apartment. Um, and he would constantly, you know, tell her, oh, you have to go by Dr. Rosario. And then we her audio recordings of him just really degrading her and, and, and in, in truly awful ways. And I think he really liked that element of, of lording over somebody with, with, with these Ivy League degrees. Hmm. Right. You have to use this name and then he would humiliate her. Wow. Yuck. Anything that they sort of loved or treasured outside of his sphere, he would use that as a weapon against them. Ugh. It's sort of impossible to name which one of these stories is the most heartbreaking because they're all heartbreaking in their own ways. But James, can you tell us about Isabella? She's still wrapped up in this, right? Sure. I mean, Isabella is Larry's indicted co-conspirator. Uh, she'll go on trial this summer. Um, but she went to an all-girls school in Texas and was very quiet and shy, got a full ride to Sarah Lawrence. Uh, and became friends with Talia. Um, and Larry kind of swooped into her life sophomore year when she was looking for um, somebody to talk to and this kind of authority figure. And um, there's a real kind of breaking point. I mean, it's Larry had been living in the dorm for about a month um, before winter break. And Larry calls her family at the beginning of winter break and says, you know, Isabella's not coming home because um, it's abusive there and she's going to stay with me in my apartment over winter break. And so she, uh, the government has called her um, uh, Larry's lieutenant um, because she kept all of his books. Most of the bank accounts Larry used over the the past few years have been in her name. she is sort of his ride or die. And a year after his arrest um, in March 2021, uh, she was indicted um, and is facing some serious charges. Yeah, and on top of all this, so she's been charged with racketeering, extortion, sex trafficking, just like Larry. And also like Larry, she's pled not guilty. You spent time with both of them, right, James? What was that like? Um, when I spent time with Larry and I spent time with Isabella, it, it was a bizarre situation because on the one hand, Larry was describing Felicia, um, whom I also met uh, as his wife. And then on the other mm-hmm. hand, he was treating Isabella there in front of me like his girlfriend. Um, and it, they really kind of behaved in this obsequious sort of like... You know, he only speak unless uh, if prompted by Larry to do so, you know, and only really talk to like affirm his talking points. It was a very bizarre 
couple of conversations I had with them. So what every parent seems to ask is, what about the parents of these kids, of Santos, of, of Isabella, and Talia's mother? So Larry Ray's ex-wife, what were they doing and thinking? There must have been someone who made this their crusade to get these kids out. They all tried in various ways. Um, the Santos's parents, the Rosarios, you know, went to the police multiple times, different precincts, and they just couldn't really get anybody to to take this on. Um, I mean, they were basically told, like, well, they're adults, you know, they're making a choice. Mm-hmm. There were various, yeah, kind of rescue attempts throughout the years, too. And even after our story came out, you know, um, Santos's mother, Isabella's aunt, went to, to Larry's house and, and tried to get the kids to come outside. There were There were police... There, um, it is a, I think, a nightmare for parents to mm-hmm. see this happening and realize that they're acting too late, you know, and of no fault of their own. It's just that I think these people get their hooks in early and it can happen really fast. Even the ones that got called about money, did their children tell them Larry would hurt them if they didn't wire more money? Well, they said they would hurt themselves. Yeah, so, you know, Santos in particular would say, hey, I'm feeling suicidal. I've broken all of Larry's stuff. If I don't pay him back, I hate myself. And so I'm, I'm going to hurt myself. And so, you know, um, suicide was sort of a, a big topic of conversation, a kind of a fascination for Larry. And Larry would talk about all of the suicide attempts that his kind of followers collectively have made and he would talk about it as a almost a point of pride that hey look at all these people who are attempting suicide and they've all come to ask for help from me and and so that was a really big thing and remember santos wasn't the only member of his family in larry's circle his two sisters felicia and yelitsa were also tangled up in this their parents ran a small travel agency and they took out loans and even sold their house in an attempt to get their kids back, or at least get them out of Larry's debt. After the break, the trial, and what this case tells us about how institutions and figureheads can betray us. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Welcome back to This is Critical. Today, my guests are James Walsh and Ezra Marcus, two journalists who are walking us through the case of Larry Ray, the so-called Sarah Lawrence, sex cult dad. Okay, so tell me about the trial. I mean, I thought the prosecution did a really good job, but also they had a mountain of evidence. Like, they had so much documentation of criminal behavior that Larry had made himself and just kept on his computer, and it's these videos that he's recording of him verbally and physically abusing people. So 
on the one hand, is kind of like served up to the prosecution on a silver platter, right? Mm -hmm. He had something like 50 devices and just endless, endless gigabytes of stuff they had to sort of sift through to find the most kind of damning material. Um, uh-huh. The defense, I mean, the defense would always say that that these kids were storytellers. It was a group of storytellers. And it's like, okay, so like, yeah, Larry, maybe he, whether or not he believed it, we are seeing him commit crimes on tape. And a big part of the trial was about whether or not he truly believed that these things had happened to him or whether he was pretending that he believed in order to be more convincing um, where the defense was saying, no, he he was convinced by these stories the kids would would make up about about poisoning him at the behest of this conspiracy. He would basically make them admit that Bernie Carrick had somehow induced them to poison him. And the defense was trying to say essentially that that was exculpatory and that because he believed he'd been poisoned, it was all right to take this money. Wait, so there was also another kid, right, who wasn't included in the initial story or the trial. Is that right? Can you tell us? about Iban. Um, We wrote about this, but there's a story that the jury never even heard about, which was this guy, Iban, who was Talia's ex-boyfriend in high school, and he was very much under Larry's influence, and Larry encouraged him to join the Marines, um, uh, likely not knowing at the time that Larry himself had never been in the Marines. Mm -hmm. Um, And Iban came back from doing two tours um, in Iraq and Afghanistan and immediately started living with Larry, and he was suffering from PTSD. And talk about like the last person again in the world you want to have coaching somebody through PTSD. And Larry really took advantage of that. You know, Iban was his personal driver. Iban um, mm. uh, was going to him, asking him for help um, as a kind of a therapy and talked about how Larry was his mentor. Um, Iban was living in and out of shelters. Um, and Iban eventually um, killed himself a few months after Larry was indicted. So, James and Ezra, you saw many of the victims at Larry Ray's recent trial. Did any of them seem like they'd finally broken free of his influence? They, they all did. Yeah. Really? They all expressed on the stand um, some indications of of the trauma they had gone through um, mm-hmm. in in often just in the, the the lengthy pauses between questions and answers where they wanted to gather themselves and explain as thoroughly as they could how somebody could be so entranced and mm-hmm. so hypnotized. Um, all of them at the end of their testimony said that this man totally messed up their lives, completely screwed up their lives, and that was powerful. And the, the, the Rosario siblings, all three of them, were there for the verdict, holding hands in, in the back row, um, which was, I think, really, really powerful. What was the jury's response? I mean, it was, this seems like it was pretty grueling. Yeah, it was kind of fascinating. I don't know if it was because of masks or what, but they were a pretty stoic jury. It was hard for mm-hmm. us to have any sense of um, what they were thinking. It's funny, we were talking about, you know, when they were dismissed to go deliberate by the judge, like, it, it must have, it was just amazing to me that they could sit through three weeks of that. And that was the first time they were allowed to talk to each other about this absolutely wild story. Right. We were like, it's going to take them an hour just to like uh, vent to each other. And, and, and finally they can talk about it. Um, they deliberated for about four hours, which with 15 federal 
counts that they were going through, that is fast. Yeah. You know, that is fast. And they found him guilty on all 15 charges. So this story really brings into focus kind of the the dark side of what we think of as safe roles and institutions, father figures on the one hand, and on the other, the idea that liberal arts colleges are supposed to be these kind of operate in loco parentis, serve as safe spaces where close-knit friendships can be formed. How did Ray exploit all of these ideas? I think it speaks to the power of group dynamics, right? Like he, mm. whether or not he understood this, but it was really effective, I think, for these for these kids to be, you know, hermetically sealed in this group where they're in an apartment with their best friends and their friends are all saying something because they're sort of being influenced to do so or, or told to do so and yelled at to do so. And so when once you get these kids in a, kind of environment that Larry controlled, he set the terms for what's normal. And he was able, I think, to use these group dynamics to really shift these people into this like upside down, you know, like crazy reality just by exploiting the fact that young people, especially, kind of are relying on their friends to, to set the tone for what they should be doing and what's acceptable. Yeah, that makes sense. Because college also opens your own idea of what's kind of acceptable behavior. But then when it combines to this and you sort of pass through that over the Rubicon until you're like really forfeiting yourself, that's, I think, where it gets terrifying and also where a young person might not be able to identify that line. Yeah, and I mean, that's also something, uh, it's funny that... You say that because the defense really keyed in on it as part of their defense that um, that the environment at Sarah Lawrence is somehow responsible for um, Claudia's descent into to sex work and, and, and like they kept on bringing up this uh, sleaze week, at, you know, I don't know, a, a kind of sexual liberation week at, at Sarah Lawrence, um, but. Um, maybe there's some element of that, but only, I think, in so much as Larry exploited it. <laughs> it was like Larry um, saw these kids. I think at one point, Claudia testified about it, talking about her, you know, use of ecstasy and Larry encouraging it. And so, like, mm-hmm. um, to have a father figure sort of encourage that, like, again, he just takes advantage of that, like, that cool dad um, figurehead. It's just, but it's truly like a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. I mean, kind of the worst person you would want um, yeah. in that role. Yeah. I mean, it's really unsettling that he took advantage of a father figure role. But I mean, I guess no one willingly goes into a cult. I mean, that was certainly true in the Nexium case. You know, that was just another cult type group under the guise of kind of psych up, you know, rise and grind work seminars, I guess. And it was very hard for people at the time to say, this is a really bad thing that's happening in the midst of a setting where you aren't looking for this kind of power dynamic manipulation. And I know in the case of Larry Ray, the media has latched onto calling it a cult, which seems appropriate. But I wonder for you guys, when you've both tossed and turned at night thinking about this story with all these voices in your head, How does it settle for each of you? You know what? I'm going to be like one of those jurors after hearing all the testimony, like James said, going into the room and just being like, what the actual fuck? Like, what is this? James, what is it? 
as you said, there are echoes of all of these other stories out there right now. And if there's, you know, it's like, what can we learn from from the common threads? And it's it's a story about coercive control. And if anything, I think people who have been in abusive relationships can recognize what Larry did and just did it on an entirely like an entirely different scale, an entirely different level. And so like Larry's story is two different stories. It's about this awful, you know, course of control kind of commune he set up on the Upper East Side, but he also had this very wild, colorful history. And I think what was unique about Larry is that we could go back through his history and kind of explain um, this wild conspiracy that he wielded over them because of the different, like, points in, in his life, because of that Forrest Gumpian past that mm-hmm. kind of then manifested itself in this conspiracy later on, which was, we I think, fascinating for us as writers and journalists. That, that part is what made it unique. But otherwise, the tactics and abuse that these kids suffered are recognizable to anybody who's been in these sorts of relationships, just kind of on steroids. Mm. Ezra? One thing that, I, that I've seen a lot of is, is sort of just commentary out there about how this is because like liberal arts students are these vulnerable, you know, special snowflakes or whatever you want to call it, like sort of trying to drag us in some kind of like culture war spectrum or just say that this was because they were like liberal arts kids who are vulnerable. And like, you know, you see a lot of like, well, I'd never let my kids fall for this or whatever. But it's like what we've seen from all these cases is that this really can happen to anybody. And it just so happened that these were, you know, that these were young people at a, at a college. But we've seen in, across these types of, you know, Nexium what have you, that, that people of all ages and of all backgrounds can fall for this set of tactics and strategies that people like Larry employ. And, and I think in terms of what this group actually was, there, it's, not, it's, it's not unique. And these weren't especially vulnerable people. Nobody thinks it's going to happen to them. It's just something that there's a sort of set of tools that in psychology that they have been found to effectively disconnect people from reality and assert control over them. Yeah. It, it's it's like coronavirus. We all have lungs and we all have psychologies and they can be exploited. I think I'm the only person who worries about Mike Pence every day um, because Mike Pence was sycophantic to someone, yesed him for so long. And then there was violence incited against him and there was a call for his hanging, like an actual lynching. And Pence still defends Trump. I mean, he's like Isabella, Ray's co-conspirator. I really think that there are certain personalities. And in a way, the more repellent they are to the rest of us, the more appealing they are to the people who fall for them, you know? Yeah, I think that throughout the reporting process, we sort of would joke about, we would just be like, don't don't say it. Don't say it. Don't say it. And it'd be like... Okay, it's Trumpian. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I know, I know. Damn it. It's like, it's our model. Right, I guess, well, I guess it like took a long time to dethrone Charlie Manson or Jim Jones. And, and now we finally have a touchstone and that'll last the next 50 years. All right, well, thanks so much um, for joining me. Thank you, Virginia. Th- thanks for having us. Appreciate it. That's it for this week's episode of This is Critical. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us and subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you like to listen. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to give us a rave and rate the show in Apple Podcasts. It helps other people learn about the show. For more information and to keep tabs on us, follow me on Twitter at Page 88 and at 
this critical pod. If you've got a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Corinne Wallace and Michelle O'Brien are the producers. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical. Stitcher. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.